Now, folks, I want to tell you that of all the sessions that I look forward to the most, this is the one. I listened to everything that John had to say about the commentaries and the outlines and all this, and, and uh, it was profound, and clearly he teaches homiletics, and I used to too, but I'll tell you this, what I have to share with you today is a lot simpler than that. I've always prayed that God would keep me simple. My staff has said, don't pray that anymore. He's answered that in many, many different ways. I need something simple. And I'm going to be sharing with you in a minute something that somebody once shared with me that changed my preaching. And whenever I have an opportunity, I want to share it with others. Now, if I say anything that's contrary to all of the wonderful men that you've already heard yesterday and John today, always know this in advance, they are right and I'm wrong. So take that, and because I may say things that are a little bit different, but of course, generally at the core, we're totally agreed. You have before you this uh, printout, don't you? Don't you? You all have this, and this is very simple. My secretary, when she gave the title of the session, called it a Sermon Preparation Made Simple. That actually is a mistake. It should be Sermon Preparation Made Simpler, because it is never really simple. It involves everything that John talked about, and um, hopefully that what I have to share will take it a step further and make it simpler for the rest of us. I have here, very quickly, we're going to go over this, and then I'm going to talk to you about what's really on my heart. There are ways, number one, what are the seven characteristics of good preaching? The communication of biblical truth, obviously, and three major kind of sermons, expository, which is what all of, we, all of us have been hearing about, textual. Spurgeon was sort of a textual preacher, he'd take a text and like John said, you know, he'd hit it and it would break apart and he'd preach it. Not all of us are that gifted, but, to, and then topical. I know, you say, Pastor Luther, for you to mention topical message, you ought to get on your knees right now and repent. If it's done well, there are times when you have to preach topics. If it's done well and if it's biblical, the problem with topical preaching is it can be so easy. You know, you talk about temptation, you talk about Adam and Eve, you talk about James chapter 1, you throw in a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you throw it together, and that's the blight of topical preaching. But there is such a thing as topical preaching that is done well because you're going to preach about a topic. And so we have to remember that as well. So there are three different kinds of preaching. Number two, the communication of truth through the life and personality of the preacher. It is not merely you preaching a text. You have to preach yourself. And by the way, I'll throw in some illustrations. I've got powerful, life-changing illustrations, but I don't have time to share them with you. <laughs> But there was a man by the name of Rembrandt who was a great painter. And one time I was in Amsterdam seeing Night Watch, and 
his great paintings. And if I remember correctly, and I may not exactly have it correctly, he painted about 400 pictures, and something like 25 were of himself, and he was not good-looking. And somebody said to him, you know, you're a painter, why don't you make yourself a little better? And he said this, if I cannot paint myself as I am, I cannot paint others as they are. Preacher, let me tell you this, that if you don't look deeply into your heart and see who you are, you really can't connect with your congregation. First of all, paint yourself at the foot of the cross and then start to paint others. So the point is the personality of the preacher. You know, the simple fact is that you and I have preached much better sermons than Billy Graham, but that doesn't mean that uh, we get the same response. Purge, Spurgeon apparently walked into this sanctuary that was being built and said out loud just to test the acoustics, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And an, a workman overheard him and was converted. The simple fact is we're not all that gifted. And, but it is through the personality of the preacher. And, and it's okay to talk about that. Stephen Olford, who was a good friend of Billy Graham, once told me that Billy always marveled at why are all these crowds coming to hear me? And uh, Billy, of course, was a very humble person. By the way, I have a great sermon on humility. <laughs> problem, is, problem is I haven't found a crowd big enough to preach it to. But he pointed out to, to uh, Billy Graham, he said, um, he said, the Bible says, and God exalted Joshua among the people. God exalts some people through leadership, through preaching ability, and he uses their personality. It's not just water that flows through a pipe. It is a tree that gives off the water, that comes up through the roots. It's you, and you are unique. There's nobody else in the world like you. And Will Rogers says, I have never yet met a man of whom I, I had wished there were two. So thank you very much for being you. Number three, it shows sensitivity to the needs of the congregation. You're not just up there saying, well, look at all this truth. You're looking them in the eye. You're talking to people. You are connecting. I think my primary gift is not teaching. I think it's exhortation. And exhorters always want to see life change in their people. And so when I begin to prepare a message, I'm always asking myself, why should somebody's life be changed forever because they have heard this? And what you want to do is to think about the needs of your people. I know that there are differences of opinion about this, but I think that pastors ought to help their congregation interpret the culture and some of the cultural streams that are happening. That doesn't mean that you read the newspaper to decide what you're going to preach on. But there are times when you have to interrupt your teaching on a book because there's a cultural issue, a stream that is flowing, and people are looking to you to speak to that. So what we have to do is to take into account the needs of the congregation. It's always good for a pastor to do some counseling. As I got older, I did very little because my staff did most, but we need to keep our feet on the ground and realize that 
in every pew there are hurting people and we need to connect with them not just mentally but in their hearts all right let's hurry on he has to have a central focus unity order and progress that's what my the rest of my talk is going to be about here unity order progress by the way i am keeping my eye on the clock and i've got lots of time and so do you you know we've got lots of time and so do you you know there was a man who was preaching too long and he knew it blessed is the person who goes over time and knows it and uh, he said doesn't anybody have a clock here and they said no but there's a calendar on the wall over there <laughs> so i'm going to keep my eye on the clock and you know what that means you don't have to god bless you thanks for being here so we're going to talk about unity, order, and progress. Number five, it stimulates thought and action by using matters such as questions. John commented on that, raising issues, challenging conventional views, leading to trust, repentance, etc., pointing out direction, guidance, comfort, exhortation. No one sermon can do all of that, but over a period of time, we preach and we preach for transformation. Number six, it gives specific instructions on what should be done. Again, John covered this. He really set the table for me here. And then there's variety in preaching. Variety. I know some people who are into prophecy. They know exactly how the beast is going to part his hair. They have their charts. And that's good because if God should forget how he planned to do it, he'd just check the chart and say, oh, that's what comes next. And I've preached a series on prophecy too. But there are those, it's a hobby horse. Every Sunday, more about the beast, more about the tribulation, more about this, more about this. Variety, biography. You preach biography, you preach the Apostle Paul's epistles. By the way, the epistles are not the wives of the apostles, as generally believed in many people's hearts. So what you do is you are having a variety. There's all kinds of different ways. You preach the Psalms, you preach this. And I was so glad that uh, David yesterday said that you can do expository preaching without necessarily preaching through a book. I, I know that, you know, again, I'm sorry, but tomorrow, tomorrow we fly back to Chicago, so I can kind of say whatever I like here. <laughs> By the way, we live close to O'Hara Field. Great big, huge jets fly over our condo. In fact, one day I was just walking from the dining room to the bedroom, and a flight attendant told me to sit down. <laughs> The simple fact is this, folks, that um, what we need to do is to recognize that good preaching gives specific instruction on what should be done, but I'm getting back to the words of David yesterday. You can preach expository messages without preaching through a whole book. In fact, I did a lot of that. For example, I preached a series of eight messages. The young man who brought me here this morning was commenting on some of those messages entitled, The Mysteries of God. Well, there is no one passage that talks about the mysteries of God, so the eternality of God. 
comes in, um, you know, the 90th Psalm and the uh, sovereignty of God in another passage. So each message was expository on a certain theme. I preached a message a series on the inheritance of the redeemed. What are the blessings that come to us in Christ for every believer? And what you do is you preach expository messages on various passages of the Bible. Now, did I preach through books of the Bible? Yes, I did that as well. But um, you don't have to preach through books in order for it to be expository. And then uh, finally, it gives variety. That's number seven. Someone has said, and I love this, I, I think it may have been Felix, Phillips Brooks, but I'm not sure. A preacher must think clearly and feel deeply and cause all of his hearers to do the same. All right, folks, deep breath, everybody. I feel very deeply about what I'm going to share with you right now. I was a graduate of the seminary that everybody should have graduated from, Dallas Theological Seminary, where truth is bottled, it is available, especially in bookstores and elsewhere. Marvelous experience, wonderful. I appreciate my Dallas training. And I become a pastor of a little Baptist church in Chicago. And I have to prepare messages. And so I do everything that John told us to do. Read the commentaries. Oh, isn't this an interesting word? Here's an illustration. Wow, I love this insight. Now, this was before computers, so you'd write down copious notes about from this commentary and that commentary until you ended with a table that was filled with notes about all these wonderful insights into Scripture. But the problem is, I don't have a message. That's the problem. You begin over here, and, and how do you get from here to there? And I love the illustration of the airplane, so that you take off and you have direction and you have unity, order, and progress, and you're actually going somewhere, and it is unified, and I love the word, maybe it's because of my German heritage, you know, German, by the way, is the only language in which you can say, I love you, and it sounds like a threat. <laughs> you know, because of my German heritage, I love the word coherence. Coherence. Hang together so that it isn't just, oh, isn't this a wonderful passage? And as we've emphasized the previous speakers, a little bit about this, a little bit about that, and you end up somewhere else. How do I unify? And I'm a Dallas grad. One day, about two years before I became the pastor of Moody Church, and I was teaching at that time at Moody Bible Institute, I had transitioned from that church. By the way, let me tell you a story here, all about God. I left that church in March so that I could teach full-time at Moody. I was studying philosophy so I needed to study for my comp exams during the summer. So we ended the ministry in March of 1977. They had a farewell for us. The question is where to go to church next time, next Sunday. I wanted to go to a different church. Rebecca said, let's go to Moody Church. And I told you last night, whenever I hear the voice of God, it sounds an awful lot like Rebecca. I had come to know the pastor, Pastor Wearsby. So we go to Moody Church and... Um, 
there's no parking. LaSalle Street is as tight as a drum, and uh, Wearsby, uh, you know, we had come to know him. I dropped Rebecca and the kids off. We only had two kids. This is 1977. I'm looking for a parking spot, and there a guy pulls out. Right in front of me, and I back in, go to the door, meet my wife in the lobby, and there's Wearsby leaving with his coat on. I said, Wearsby, what are you doing here? It's 10 minutes before the service. Erwin Lutzer, I'm sick. I'm on my way home. Will you preach for me this morning? So the first time we ever attended Moody Church, I preached at Moody Church. And that became one of the links that God put together, whereby eventually I'd become the pastor. It's all of God, really. I wrote my autobiography, and there still are some copies there, to give glory to God to show how he was leading me when I was totally unaware of it. But anyway, two years before I became the pastor, I was then teaching at Moody Bible Institute in the intervening time. A guy by the name of Lloyd Perry, who taught Trinity, uh, taught homiletics at Trinity, we met in the dining room. Again, this is God. It has nothing to do with me. He said, let's have a cup of coffee together and let's talk about homiletics. And in 10 minutes, he changed everything for me. 10 minutes! And if I got it in 10, you can easily get it in 8. But I am going to speak a little longer than 8 because I want to take it a little farther than he took it there. But I caught on to it right away. It was absolutely revolutionary. From that time on, I could hardly wait to outline sermons, and they would be sermons, hopefully, that had a lot more unity, order, and progress. I hope I'm not overselling this. I don't want to shoot off a cannon and out comes a pea. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing, folks. This is so simple. You're going to say, why in the world was this so transforming for him? But again, simple, yeah, that's what I need. I need something simple to have unity, order, and progress. So let me explain it to you, and then I'll give you a bunch of examples, and we could actually do it here if this were a classroom, but it's not, but that's all right. Here's what he said. When you look at a passage, it's like John was saying, you know, you can ask, is it a how passage, is it a why passage, is it a what passage, or who passage, whatever. Think of its direction. And then as you begin to think of its direction, what you need is a key word. Now, the key word is not a word in the text. This is not like key words that we heard about justification, sanctification. The key word is a plural noun that will give unity to your sermon. It will be the unifying factor so that now it will be, and I'm using a word here, the centrifugal force that will enable that sermon to begin somewhere, to end somewhere, in a way that is unified. A key word, for example, I gave you some examples here. When he told me this, I was about to preach on the life of Moses. My key idea, you know, you find people say, well, find the key idea, the big idea. All right, good. I have the big idea. 
But how do I preach it? How do I apply it? How do I, how do I expound on it? So I looked at the life of Moses in Exodus chapter 2 when he was in the desert, and I, again, I'm sorry, I apologize for the simplicity of this. But again, I mean it sincerely. I needed something simple. I thought to myself, you know, the big idea could be this, that there are lessons you learn in the desert that the palace can never teach you. Failure is often the best teacher. That was my main idea. So then I began to ask myself, all right, if that's the main idea, what are those lessons that Moses learned in the desert that the palace could never teach him? And then I read the Bible, and I see that there's the lesson of servanthood. He's serving out there, uh, you know, among the sheep, and he even begins early by taking the stone away and allowing the young women to water their flocks. The lesson of trust how when God called him, he was unwilling to go. I mean, and then the lesson of obedience. Do you realize this? And I hope that you've preached on this. Moses is standing on holy ground. God says, take the shoes from off your feet because you are standing on holy ground. Moses is standing on holy ground and giving five reasons why he should not go back to Egypt. He's arguing with God on holy ground. So the lesson of obedience so, do you notice now? So we begin the sermon by introducing it, giving people a reason to listen, and I believe strongly in introductions and conclusions, as John pointed out. We begin there, and then the transitional sentence always has the key word. After you give the intro, then you say, now what we're going to do today is to look at Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to look at three lessons that Moses learned in the desert that the palace could never have taught him. And you know what happens? People actually begin to take out their pens. And they say, three lessons. You know, this guy's actually going somewhere. Three lessons. I wonder what they are. Lesson number one, the lesson of servanthood. Do you notice? And I agree totally. Thanks, John. I don't think that your points should necessarily begin with the same letter. You know, I broke that rule yesterday evening, if you were here. My key word was convictions. There are three convictions that these men had that we need to transmute. And, and uh, you know, it happened to be, you know, the promises of God, the providence of God, and the presence of God. That just happened. That's unusual. And by the way, yesterday... I had two key words. Uh, normally I don't, but the second key word was lessons. What lessons would these men teach us if they could speak to us today? Normally, my sermons have only one key word, but, um, you know, there are exceptions, and that's an example. But anyway, you know, I, I have a message which I would never preach at a uh, Calvary church because... It probably is not based exactly, it's all scriptural, but it doesn't grow necessarily out of the text. It, it's a great message. It's called the grasshopper complex. You remember when Israel wouldn't go into the land and they said, you know, we're like grasshoppers in their sight, and so we were in their sight, and 
all that. And I begin by talking about the, the grasshopper complex. The grasshopper complex is turning away from a great opportunity because of fear. So I introduce that. I talk about complexes and the grasshopper complex. I set the whole thing up, and then we go into five characteristics, that's the key word, of the grasshopper complex. And I've sometimes preached that message at a certain point, and when you get to the transitional sentence, which has the key word, which happens to be uh, characteristics, you know, there are actually people, if it's at a banquet, looking for napkins and stuff, hey, give me a napkin, do you, do you have a pen? Five characteristics. How do you know if you're a grasshopper? Five characteristics of the grasshopper complex. Immediately, people are saying, you know, he's going somewhere. The life of Caleb. I preached on Caleb. You know, how should we look at Caleb? You have all these little incidents in his life. Well, what you do is you talk about the fact that the character of a man is determined by what it takes to stop him. And then you look at barriers that Caleb overcame to follow the Lord fully. The first was race. He was actually a Kenizzite. The second was peer pressure. You remember they wanted to stone him. The third was the barrier of old age. I mean, the guy should have been in Boca Raton, you know, playing shuffleboard for heaven's sake. He was 85 and yet said, give me this mountain. And there are some others also. This is a summary. But do you notice now, what are the barriers that he overcame? The key word is barriers, plural noun. What are the barriers that he overcame to follow the Lord fully? Now, I preached a message here yesterday, and some of you may have been here. It's about the woman, the Canaanite woman, who got help for her demonized child. And yesterday, my key word was also barriers. What are the barriers that she overcame to get help for her child? And there we had religion, culture, protocol, the disciples, the reply of Jesus, I mean, powerful, but she broke through all those barriers and was so desperate for her child. So my key word was barriers. You know, when it says here, welcome by Jesus, that's a mistake. That should be the next page where I talk about Stephen. Stephen, you know, you want to, and uh, you'll notice here, I say four realities and then only give three. How do you preach Stephen, the first martyr? You know, he sees the glory of God. Jesus is at the right hand. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus isn't seated at the right hand of God. He actually stands up to welcome Stephen. But how do you preach that so that it isn't just comments about the text? Well, you think about it a while, and when I preached on it, I said, all right, what happens when a Christian dies? And you raise that whole thing about what is it like to go to heaven? What did Stephen experience? He experienced four realities. I know that only three are written here. But the glory of God he experienced, the welcome of Jesus, the safekeeping of God. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And so what you have is now this passage with a sense of unity, order, and progress, it actually is going somewhere. And you begin it by talking about the realities that are happened to those who die. 
And I know that, as I've already mentioned, actually my sermon had four. There are only three here. I don't exactly remember what the other one was, but these notes were made a bit hurriedly. I was asked to come to a conference and speak about churches. It was a church conference. It was small churches throughout America, but there were about a thousand people there. So I'm thinking, well, you know, that old passage, and I don't say old in a derogatory way, but Jesus, upon this rock I'll build my church, which he says in, uh, in Philippi. And if you've been to Israel, you know that Jesus is standing right there in the middle of paganism. Over there, there's the god Pan. There's the cave, which apparently were the gates of Hades. He's at the base of the mountain of transfiguration. Standing right there, he says, I'll build my church. But how do you preach that so that you just don't talk about the passage? Well, I looked at the passage, and uh, I know it's not supposed to be this way. But because I've been doing this for so long, sometimes in 10 minutes, I, I have my outline. I know you're supposed to do the exegesis and all, and, and I totally 100% agree with John. Remember, if there's any contradiction between what I say and John says, always go with John. But oftentimes, the text itself is pretty clear. Now, of course, you have to do exegesis. You have to understand the gates of Hades. You have to understand the context. And you set all that up. I'm 100% on John's side regarding all the study and the commentaries and the word studies and all the rest that need to be done. But then, how do you package it so that it has unity, order, and progress? So you set up the whole idea of the church, and then you say, and my key word here is features. What I'd like to do today is to give you four features of the church that Jesus announced. The word features is the key word. Jesus owns the church. I will build my church. Jesus builds the church. You explain how Jesus builds the church. You explain that he preserves the church. The gates of Hades will not uh, fight against it. And Jesus empowers the church. You know, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Now, all that needs to be explained, especially to an audience where there are Catholics who wonder what that is. And so that's why I'm 100% in favor of studying a passage exegetically and in all the different ways that John laid out. But here you see unity, order, progress. The key word is the features of the church. Somebody... Uh, wrote to me and said, uh, what about, uh, I have to preach on 1 John 1.9. Years ago, I preached a message on 1 John 1.9, and it used the word steps, and I forget exactly what that outline was, because that was many years ago. But I wrote to this person, and uh, sometimes people text me, and they say, I have to preach this on Sunday, and this is a Wednesday. I, I don't have an hour. So I just sit down and make it up and send it to them. Uh, I, I'm over-exaggerating. It isn't that easy. Sometimes I've wrestled with this. Sometimes it hasn't come together. But there are times you look at the text, and if you're thinking in terms of which direction does it go, and you're thinking in terms of the key word, 
I remember saying, we all wrestle with guilt and regret. I mean, that's easy to set up in your intro. Remember an intro, and I was going to talk about intros, but John did, and he did it very effectively. An intro should give people a reason why you should listen. Now, there are some who don't believe in intros. You know, let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. Well, if you begin that way, I'll turn to Galatians chapter 2 because I'm interested in what you have to say and I'm predisposed because I love the Bible. But there are tons of people who come into our churches who don't care one hoot what Galatians has to say. You have to give them a reason to listen to you. You say, do people come to church with their minds closed? Are you kidding? They come to church with their minds welded shut. Do I have an amen? It's okay to say amen in a context like this. So what you do is you give them a reason to listen. If you were here last night, I tried to give you a reason to listen because as I gave you a bit of examples of the conflict between church and state and how the state can become God through laws and so forth, trying to give you reasons to listen. So I said, well, there's some steps that we need to do in 1 John 1.9. First of all, we must admit to something, namely, we confess our sins. Secondly, we must believe something, namely, that he is faithful and just to forgive us. Third, we must receive something, and that is cleansing. There are plenty of people who are forgiven, but they're not cleansed. And so what happens is their forgiven sin continues to haunt them because they've never received cleansing. I take the cleansing there to be a subjective work of God whereby we receive his cleansing and we actually feel clean. So how do you overcome guilt? You begin that way and then you say, 1 John 1, 9, very familiar verse. I'm going to give you three steps on overcoming guilt. Unity, order, and progress. I preached a message, a series, as I mentioned, on um, the mysteries of God. And uh, I remember Psalm 90. What a, what a text. I've wrestled with the eternality of God. By the way, I wrote on the, on the internet, I was telling uh, the young man there from uh, Question and Answer Ministry, who created God. And it's received a lot of publicity. It goes around on the internet and so forth, dealing with the issue of, is it easier to say that the universe existed forever or that God existed forever? Is it contradictory to believe in the fact that God existed from all eternity? Obviously, a lot of mystery connected here. But um, these kinds of things interest me. But you'll notice that um, there are four facts about God's eternality. At least this is the outline I used. He existed from all eternity. He created all that is ever since the hills and the mountains were there from everlasting to everlasting. He exists outside of time. In fact, that's where it says, you know, that a thousand years in thy sight is like yesterday when it was spent. 
And you try to get your mind around that. You read people who have tried to help us to understand and get a handle on what that might mean to the extent that we can as human beings. But God, of course, exists outside of time. I'll see if I can remember this story. I didn't rehearse it, haven't used it for years, but it's coming to mind about a man who said to the Lord, he said, Lord, how long is a million years to you? The Lord said, oh, about a second. He said, Lord, how much is a million dollars to you? And the Lord said, oh, about a penny. And he said, Lord, could I have a penny? And the Lord said, sure, just a second. <laughs> he exists throughout all generations. And the implications of Psalm 90 are huge. He unifies history. He gives us a purpose. He establishes his work. One day I was preaching from Mark chapter 5, and really having a trouble, that's the next page there, having trouble with unity, order, and progress. What is the key word that I'm going to use to unify this passage? And I struggled with it. This is an example of where you struggle with an outline. It doesn't, in my opinion, it just didn't fall apart like oftentimes outlines do. So I just said, you know what, my key word is going to be questions. So I set it up regarding Jesus and demonic spirits, you introduce it, and then we talk about this man and we answer questions. Where did he live? The tombs. How did he act? Obsessive behavior. What did he feel? Self-hatred. He's cutting himself. Who did he encounter? Jesus. How did he prove his deliverance? So, you know, my key word there was questions. Uh... I heard a message by a guy, a good preacher, who preached on five things about heaven. Now, you see, the human mind always wants to unify. So if you didn't hear this message, what I often did before Mr. Perry met with me I would use the word things. Now, there are some, I know a pastor who does this all the time, so don't worry, he's in the Chicago area. But uh, there are four things in this passage I want to show you. So everything is a thing. And then next week, you know what? Look at this passage. There are some things in this passage that I want to teach you. Well, the, the word thing is a plural noun under which things can be uh, assumed. But, of course, the word things gives no direction whatever to the message because, as a matter of fact, I can't think of anything that isn't a thing. <laughs> so everything is a thing. But that's what the human mind does. That's the default position. That's probably what I did when I was the pastor of a small Baptist church is let's look at some things in this passage. But the word things gave no direction at all as to where I was going. Because anything could be a thing. The man who preached on five things about heaven, if he had thought about it for 30 seconds, and it wouldn't have taken much longer than that, 
He could have even used the word blessings. There are five blessings that come to us in heaven because the word blessings, you see, would have given some direction as to where he was going because we understand that word, but the word things was used. I like to go to this next one because I've never preached this message about temptation that businessmen face. This was an example of somebody texting me on a Wednesday and said, I have to preach this passage and I don't know how, please help me. So I sat on a bench and it occurred to me, uh, this is James chapter 4, you know, this would be worth turning to. I think someday I have to preach this message. I don't know whether or not he preached it well, but hey, you know, I thought to myself, my, oh my, I believe that God enabled me to preach this passage. So, you know, he, he texts me. It's Wednesday. Sunday's coming. Don't have an outline. Come now, you who say, this is chapter 4, verse 13, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? It's like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do fails to do it. For him it is sin. So I was sitting on that bench thinking, what is the key word that would give uni unity to what James is saying? And uh, the word that came to me is the word temptations. Now another word could have been mistakes. It's not as if there's absolutely one key word, because there are many synonyms. But imagine preaching this now. I could almost stand up here now and preach it. You talk about businessmen, and then you include all the rest of us, but especially businessmen, but you're preaching to everybody in the church, whether they're businessmen or not, and then say, here are four temptations that you have to overcome. Wow! Unity, order, and progress, the temptation to presumption. Oh, we made a profit this year, we're going to go somewhere else, and we're going to make more last year, and hey, don't be presumptuous. You'd be surprised at the amount of money that some people have lost in a short period of time. In the book that uh, is written by a man whose name does not immediately come to mind, he was asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, in two ways. First of all, slowly, and then suddenly. The temptation to presumption. The temptation to forget about the brevity of life. Don't you know that you're Life is like a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. You're not going to be around for long. The temptation to take credit for what God does. Notice what the text says. You, you are taking, in fact, it says that expressly. Uh, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You're taking credit for what God has given you. It's a temptation. And then the temptation to do what you want rather than what you should so there you have, basically, four temptations that businessmen have to overcome and that need to face. 
And that's the way you can preach that text. So, uh, you know that uh, I was at a missions conference some time ago, and they asked me to preach the opening session. And uh, I'd preached on this passage before, but turn to Matthew chapter 9 for just a moment. I said, Lord, you know, I know that I've preached on Matthew 9 before, but I need, let's see, is Matthew in the New Testament? I need to look at this passage again, because the outline I had used was rather cumbersome. And uh, I needed something simple that people could uh, latch on to. And this isn't in your notes. I'm just calling it to mind now. So, you know, what are you going to do? Verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest field. So I wrestled with that and said, see, what the average pastor would be tempted to do is to read that and then begin to make comments about how we have to be missionary-minded and go into the neighborhoods and go to the world and so forth. It would be a text that would be very easy as a jumping-off text to say whatever we wanted to about missions, and that might be okay. But I was wrestling with the question of, Jesus here is telling us to enlarge our world. He's telling us to look beyond our own needs and see the needs of others. So I went to bed wrestling with the question of what is going to be my key word that is going to give unity to my mission message and so forth. Jesus here, I think, is our model and our example. So I woke up, which is a good thing to do, by the way. There are lots of people who don't wake up. Uh, I, did you hear, by the way, about the preacher who dreamed he was preaching? And then he woke up and found out he was. <laughs> Am I going too fast for some of you? It dawned on me that the key word is going to be ways. And the way I'm going to begin it is this. I'm going to talk about the narcissism, how we see only ourselves, and how do we expand our world? Well, we expand our world in four ways using Jesus as our example. First of all, we expand our world by what we see. Notice the text. He saw the crowds. Oftentimes we see and we don't really see. We don't see the needs around us because we're too narcissistic and focused on ourselves. So Jesus expanded his world in this way, the first way. And by the way, since I'm using the word way, I actually noticed that at the transitional sentence, people were actually looking for their pens. When I said, I'm going to give you four ways that we can expand our world immediately, you know, there were people who began to take notes and use the offering envelope that they should have used for other purposes earlier, <laughs> and, and they began to write the ways. Number one, by what we see. 
Number two, by what we feel. You'll notice that it says regarding Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then a third way that we can expand our world is by what we pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest send forth labors into his harvest field. And next we can expand our world by the way in which we go, because in the next chapter they're going, and I know they're only going to the lost house of the house of Israel, so you need to clarify that and say that today we go everywhere. But do you see now how a passage that you read like that, that would be easy to just make comments on, suddenly you're actually looking at the text and you're answering the question of how do you change your world? Now, you know that uh, I give you some other key words here. Now, I have a list of 200. It's not original with me. It comes out of a homiletics book. I don't have it here exactly. Um, my secretary could email it to me. I don't use it because there are about 12 or 15 different keywords that I use most often. Aspects. What are the aspects of this? What are the reasons? If it's a why passage, why should people pray? Your keyword is almost certainly going to be reasons. As a matter of fact, speaking of reasons, you were here yesterday by, when a young man by the name of David preached. And that young man preached about five reasons for expository preaching. And I thought, wow, unity, order, and progress. And, and the others also used key words, so, uh, but there's an example. Characteristics. What are the characteristics of godliness, or what are the characteristics of the grasshopper complex, to go back to a sermon I referred to, ways. In fact, John, I didn't get a chance to read what you gave us, but somebody gave me that photocopy. Is that what you were handing out? I think it was how to walk with God or something in these ways. Your key word was ways. So features, what are the features of this? Gifts. What are the gifts? Like, um, let's suppose you were to preach a message on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This isn't in your notes. I'm just picking this up from memory. How do you begin a message like that? How do you, you know, you could begin by saying, so what do you believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And then uh, give the fact that, you know, it is a controversial doctrine, yada, 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 you're setting everything up, and, and uh, pretty soon people are saying, oh, um, you know, that is um, uh, very interesting. I wonder what he's going to say about that. And then what you do is you say, you know, and I'm looking for this myself, because it's not in my notes, I'm just uh, remembering what I once preached. But people but say, you know, there are controversial passages about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and so forth. Why don't we today look at the clearest passage in all the New Testament regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and when we do, we'll see three characteristics of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, immediately people are saying, oh, this guy's begun somewhere. He's going somewhere. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which is the closest and the clearest verse on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what are the characteristics? First of all, it is supernatural. For by one spirit are we put into the body. This is something that God does and that the only the Holy Spirit of God can do. Number two, it is um, universal. We are all baptized into one body. Even the carnal people at Corinth were now members of the body of Jesus Christ. Third, it is relational. It becomes the basis for spiritual gifts and our connecting with one another, etc. Do you see? And I hate to keep repeating myself. But is it okay? Yeah, you're giving me an amen over there? Unity, order, progress. I'll try not to say that anymore. I think you've got it. Now, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16. This is a message I've often preached. Oh, and there's no outline here. Oh, so let's, let's make up the outline right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Oh, this really, really preaches. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. You can take this home and you can preach it. Just preach it. It's God's will. You're looking for something. It's Saturday night and the Spirit hasn't fallen. Verse 16, for we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. A number of years ago, I looked at this passage and it just jumped out at me that the key word is going to be comparisons. And I'll see if I remember my outline. As I say, this is totally done from memory. It's been years since I preached this. But notice, the first comparison is between the outer and the inner. The outer man is wasting away. And, you know, look at this audience. I mean, I'm looking at some of you. You know, you're on your way. <laughs> I'm beginning to lean on the pulpit. <laughs> the outer is wasting away because we're all born with an expiration date, okay? The outer is wasting away, but the inner is being renewed. And here my parents come into view. My father, when he was 105, before he became 106, he uh, was sitting there, and in one word, I don't know if I told you this or not, because sometimes we start to get a little bit of slippage, but he's sitting in a wheelchair, eyes closed, not listening to us, I didn't think. Rebecca and I are talking to my mother, and he wasn't able to finish his sentences at 105. He'd begin them, and then couldn't finish them, but he said one, he woke up and said one full sentence in German. We have been speaking about the present, now it is time for us to speak about eternity and the glory of God. 
So even though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Secondly, the contrast between this light momentary affliction and the eternal weight of glory. What Paul is using there is a scale. We used to have those old scales in Canada where you put a two-pound piece of iron on one side and meat on the other, and supposedly you're getting two pounds of meat. What Paul is saying is, look, take all the things that you're going through, all of the divorces and the brokenheartedness and the health issues and the loneliness, and you put it on one side of the scale, and then you put the eternal weight of glory on the other side, and the scale will go plunk. It's like putting a human hair on one side and an elephant on the other. There is no comparison. You can preach that. It's free. <laughs> and then the third contrast is between the world that we see and the world that we don't see and point out that the world that we don't see is just as real as the one that we do see, but we keep our eyes on the unseen world. So what you do is you set it up. And then you say to everybody, there are three comparisons in this passage. Now you could say, well, now there are the three things that I want to show you here. Yeah, that's possible. And God blesses all kinds of sermons. You know, did I tell you Vance Havner? He said, I've never yet had heard a sermon where I didn't get anything. But he said, I've, I've had some mighty close calls. <laughs> did you hear about it? And, Thanks, John, for mentioning the need for commentaries and other preachers and so forth. And maybe you heard this one where a young guy got up and he began to preach and said, you know, I don't use any commentaries. I don't look at any books because I want to be original or nothing. Abner says, the guy wasn't preaching for five minutes before I realized he was both. <laughs> so anyway... Romans 5, 1 to 15. You know, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Here, here, it's so clear to me. I look at it and I say, look at the blessings. Look at the blessings that justification brings. The, the blessing of peace, the blessing of access. We have access to God. The blessing of joy, we rejoice in the glory of God. The blessing of Love, being loved by the Spirit. So the word blessings is your key word that's going to give you unity, order, and progress. A word about introductions. John has already commented on this, so my remarks will be brief, but I really do begin, believe deeply that an introduction should introduce the sermon, and you ought to have an introduction and give people reasons to listen. But as John pointed out, don't scare up more rabbits than you're able to shoot. Don't begin by saying, now there's been a controversy between Arminianism and Calvinism, and today all of your questions about it are going to be resolved. Don't say that, because it's possible after you're finished there'll still be some unresolved issues. But nonetheless, introduce the subject, tell people, the young man who brought me here so that he listened online to my message on predestination. Give reasons why it's important. Speak with humility and recognize that there's lots of mystery. And set it up. And then people will listen, hopefully. I believe strongly in conclusions. I believe that many a mediocre sermon has been 
has been um, brought up or a mediocre sermon has been improved or challenging because of its illust- because of its conclusion where you take all this truth now you've given information and you've applied it as you've gone along but it's time for transformation and so what you do is you try to help people to see themselves in the situation and why it is that what you are saying is relevant and very important and why you expect people to be changed forever because they've listened to that sermon. That's always what I used to pray. Before I would preach at Moody Church, the day or two before, oh God, may some people listen to this message and be eternally transformed. Either because of what they learned, maybe they are getting saved, maybe they're getting dedicated, maybe there's an insight, maybe there's an encouragement, Maybe there's an admonition that they are picking up on, and because of that, they will be changed. And again, I need to say this, and I think John agrees, I believe that illustrations are incredibly powerful. We remember them. They are, like John said, you know, the the window, the light in the window. They aren't, we don't build glass houses, but powerful illustrations that people will oftentimes forget what you've preached I hate to be so pessimistic but it's amazing how people forget all the wonderful things that we say and sometimes we do too we forget our own stuff but it is amazing and Jesus told parables and so forth because they're easy to remember and, and they're sometimes obvious. Of course, Christ had some that were that obvious, and then he explained them. But um, I believe that a good illustration that takes the truth and, and lays it down, that nails it to the wall, is oftentimes very, very important. John over here, a week ago Sunday, preached on uh, Jesus crossing the lake. In, from uh, Matthew chapter 14. Great sermon. But John, I have to tell you one illustration that I use when I preach that passage because it's not mine, it's Tony Evans. Tony Evans, and by the way, his wife Lois died about a week ago and, and so forth. And so Tony and, and his daughter is having serious surgery. We keep up with them because I've known Tony for many, many years. Dear brother, great preacher. And he tells this story of he and Lois being on a cruise. And over the intercom came the remark that we're headed into a storm, so buckle up. And uh, Lois didn't like that too well. She tried to speak to the captain, but she spoke to his assistant and said, if we're headed into a storm, why don't we just, um, you know, uh, put down the anchor and wait for the storm to pass? and then we continue going. And the assistant said, I'll talk to the captain, I'll call you back. So the assistant calls back and says, I spoke to the captain and he has two things that he needs to say to you. And I'm sure that they were said very sweetly and very diplomatically. Number one, um, he's in charge and you're not. But then he said this, 
Are you ready for what he said? You ready? You ought to write this down. He said, tell her that this ship was built with this storm in mind. And when you and I trust Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who was raised again and was ascended into heaven, when you and I trust him, we're trusting someone who died and rose again and is coming again with our storm in mind. I have many, many great illustrations, but you're not going to hear them. It's time for me to pray, and it's time to eat.